Well, good morning. I love it when he calls me doctor, and if you need help, I'll be in the back after, and I'll just say, take an aspirin, and I'll call me in the morning, or whatever, that, whatever you say for that. But A new beginning, 2023, first day of 2023, and uh, we, we've spent the last several weeks talking about Jesus' birth. We call it Advent, the coming of Jesus. <clears throat> There are four accounts of Jesus' life in, in the Gospels, and, and the Gospels comprise that much, I don't know if you can see that or not, that much of the whole Bible. It's the story of Jesus. And you, many of you know this, you've been around, and three of the Gospels explore that beginning that we just celebrated in December, Jesus' birth. You know, you've got Matthew and Luke, and they're talking about Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist being born, and you got shepherds, and you got wise men and angels in the sky, and all of that. John, he takes the long view. He, <clears throat> he goes way back, and he talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God. The gospel I want to talk about, and we're going to be talking about this over the next weeks during 2023 is the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. Many scholars believe it's the earliest gospel. And Mark fast-forwards 30 years. He doesn't do any of the Bethlehem and the manger and the sheep and all. He doesn't do any of that. He starts out his gospel with Jesus 30 years old. And he's very direct uh, the, the thought is that Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, John and Luke write to a Gentile audience, non-Jewish, like me, Goyim, what they call Goyim, that's me. And then Mark is in Rome, and he's writing like a paperback edition to Roman soldiers. So it's bam, 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 like this. It's, it's action-oriented. I mean, Mark is not saying, let's have a little conversation about Jesus. He's saying, lights, camera, action. Let's go with this thing. If Mark were here this weekend, this is, a, this is like a big weekend for football. Some of you, you know, World Cup was earlier, but football this week. So you've got the playoffs with the, with the uh, NCAA Division I schools, and we know who's playing in that game later on. And, and the NFL, they're cranking it up to try to figure out who's going to get to the playoffs and get the Super Bowl. And there are thousands of fans and hundreds of players, and there are handfuls of announcers and other analysts if Mark were here, he would be a play-by-play -play guy. That's his gospel. It's play-by-play -play about the life of Jesus. And so I called Pastor Derry when I knew I was going to speak this weekend, and we're going to do this, uh, this year-long exploration of the gospel of Mark, and it's going to be tremendous. But I said, is it okay if I, if I like, started out like the first Sunday? He said, Sure. So I said, I just want to start with that first verse. So it, if, you're a, if you're a golfer, I'm teeing it up today. If you really like Broadway and the, act, the acting, I'm setting the stage. If you're a movie buff, this will be the trailer. If you're a construction architect person, these are design development drawings. If you're an academic, these are cliff notes. If you like to eat, this is just wetting your appetite. Oh, and if, if you're a rancher or a farmer, this is just a little green shoot coming up over the dirt. So I'm starting it this week with one verse. We're going to hang with one verse today. And here's the verse. Mark, 
the first chapter, the first verse reads like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He goes on to just say this little bit. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, which is 700 years earlier, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And I'll get to that in a minute. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of... You said, you just said that twice. I'm going to say it again before we're done. So I just want to make sure we got that, okay? A beginning, if you're a note taker, here's where you start. A beginning describes something new. It's a fresh start, a clean slate. I like what N.T. Wright, who's a scripture scholar, pastor in England, writes about the gospel of Mark where he says, if you're dead asleep and you're having a great dream and you're way down under that and somebody walks into your room and shouts in your face, wake up, and throws a bucket of water in your face, that's what Mark does when he starts the gospel. He just goes, bang. It isn't there are angels in the sky. It's just whap like that. A new beginning for me is often something unexpected. I'm just going along in my life and something happens or somebody happens and it changes my direct. My experience is that my new beginnings tend to be triggered by somebody. Uh, God brings them into one's life. they thinking in a different way. Sometimes it's somebody behind the scenes. They don't have to be dramatic. It's just something quiet. But sometimes it's more obvious. So, um, let me give an illustration. Let me explain this. The year is 1966. My wife Ruth and I are 24 years old. We have an eight-month-old daughter, Erica, who now is the grandmother of four. So that gives just a little perspective. Okay. And uh, we're going from California to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which is 135 miles south of Chicago. It's where the University of Illinois is. And we're going to do a church plant or what we called back in the day a pioneer congregation with about a dozen university students from the University of Illinois. And so we get Erica and load up our luggage in a 1966 Chevy Chevelle. Do any of you know what a Chevy Chevelle is? Okay. And we drive from Modesto, California to Illinois. And there I meet a fellow named E.M. Clark. E.M. Clark is a kindly man, I think probably in his 50s or 60s at that time and he's wise and he's the leader of a group of congregations and he was gentle and strong but he thought about things in a different way they had sort of a slogan or a mantra to young uh, wannabe pastors like I was and it was come share your dream and let us help you fulfill it that was sort of the thing And so he had a real impact on my 24-year-old self. Fast forward 30 years. Ruth and I have spent 12 years in Illinois, and then we spent 14 years in California, where I was president of a small college, and then went to Washington, D.C. So it's the middle 90s, and my phone rings in D.C., and it's E.M. Clark from Illinois. He's not there anymore. He's someplace else. But he's saying, my son, our son Vern, is coming to Washington 
for a third tour. Vern was in the Navy. And I'd like you to make contact with him. Just go see him. I said, sure, I'll do that. And so we made contact. And I knew his dad. I knew of him, but I knew his dad real well. But I didn't know him very well. And so we started meeting together every couple of weeks. And I'd go to the Pentagon because Vern was in the Navy. He just wasn't in the Navy. He was like a three-star admiral. For those of you not familiar with the military, the most you can get like is four. There have been a couple of guys way back here, but four is the top. And so this is Vern. This is a picture of Vern in his dress whites. Kind of cool looking. And I don't know how in the world they keep those clean. I have no idea how they do that. But it wasn't, that's his formal attire. This is Vern informally on the deck of a destroyer or something or a frigate with some of his people. And, and we got to be really good friends. And so Vern and I chat almost every week now. He's in Phoenix. He's retired. And I told him, I'm going to be speaking in Timberland on this verse. I'm going to be speaking on the first verse of the book of Mark where it says, you know, this is the beginning about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he said, in the Navy, we call that bluff. I said, what do you mean bluff? He said, you know, B-L-U-F. I thought he spelled it wrong. He said, for us, that means bottom line up front. You set the stage by putting the main thesis or the statement right at the front. So here is Mark saying, here's what I know, here's what I believe. Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God. I'll explain it to you as we go. That's sort of the, the tagline on it, okay? And the beginning of the, of the good news is a person for him because he introduces us to this fellow named John the Baptist. And later on when we start this series, that'll be unpacked more. But John the Baptist is about Jesus' age. He's like a second cousin to Jesus when, you, when we read that other story, you know, Matthew and Luke and so forth, they talk about him. And, <clears throat> excuse me, as does John. And John the Baptist is about 30. Jesus is about 30. He's six months older than Jesus. Both of these people, John the Baptist and Jesus, will be executed by the state in their early 30s. But his role, John the Baptist's role, is that of a herald. It, it, it's somebody who back in the day for royals, for kings and queens, would go ahead of them sometimes by days and say to all the villagers, get the potholes fixed and get everything cleaned up because the king is coming. Da, da, da. That's his role. And it was predicted by Isaiah 700 years before. So John, in a very real sense, is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And what's interesting with Mark's statement is that he's using government language. Back in the day, the Roman government would have statements like that on um, monuments to either dead Caesars or advertising the birth or, uh, of, a, of a Caesar, commemorating the birthday. Language like this, we bring you good news of great joy about Caesar Husits or whatever back in the day. So this is, this is government language that Mark is using to describe the, the uh, appearance, if you will, as an adult of Jesus. What's interesting about it is that by the time this is written, 
probably toward the end of the first century, people like you who believed that Jesus was real and that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and so forth, uh, they were persecuted by the Roman state because the Roman state said, not only is Caesar the king of all there is, but you need to worship him. And the people who believed in Jesus would say, well, he may be king, but we're not worshiping him. There's only one person we worship. So here's the deal. Good news is a person. Good news is not a thought. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. And that word good news again, good news again that's, that's used by the Roman government. Good news is a person first. We just celebrated the coming of Jesus as a baby. What was in God Almighty's mind when he said, why don't I show up to redeem a people, but I'll go like one of them, not just like one of them. This is not an avatar or you know, beam me up Scotty or Star Trek. This is not that. I'll go as a baby, so I'll know their first trauma. I'll know the, the trauma of birth because it's traumatic when you're born, I guess. I don't remember exactly, but I, I'm told, right? And the, and the point is that talk about vulnerable, totally vulnerable when you're a baby. And it's like God says, why don't, why don't I come and show you what a perfect person is like? I won't start with your issues. I'll start with your person. And as we walk together, I'll take care of your issues going forward. When you identify with me, I'll lead you to the cross and we'll take care of the issues. We'll, we'll do the great exchange. Of give me all your junk and I'll give you all my grace and glory. The idea that good news as a person is essential to this story. Jesus equals Messiah. So Jesus is a name. Yeshua, that's the root word for Joshua, means deliverer, right? one who saves. Messiah is a title. So this is a name like if you say Dick Foth, old guy. That's my title. This is, this is my name over here. It's Jesus, Messiah, the anointed one. And people both in the tradition of faith here but also just in history understand that a Messiah <coughs> excuse me, is someone who comes to fix everything. I mean, we say, you know, uh, Harry's the new guy in the office and he's got a messianic complex. That's not a compliment. What we're saying is he thinks he can run everything. He thinks he's the answer to everything. That's what messianic complex is. This is not about a complex. This is about the real deal here. The Messiah comes to fix the world. This is both language. To fix the world, to change how we are and sometimes change our circumstances thing about a Messiah is that a Messiah has a mission. I've already described it. It's a specific enterprise, a thing to do that changes other things. So my friend Vern Clark, the guy I was talking about, he helped me understand mission one day when I walked into his office at the Pentagon. I walked into his office. He said, Dick, have you ever been on an aircraft carrier? I said, yeah, I, I was 17 years old in Oakland, California, and they have a, a, a naval base in Alameda just over there, not far, and the USS Ranger aircraft carrier came and I toured it on a Saturday as a 17-year. He said, no, no, have you ever been on an aircraft carrier like at sea? I said, no. I he said, we need to remedy that. He said, get a few of your friends and we'll work out. So I get three or four of my friends and we go to Norfolk Naval Base south of Washington, D.C., about three and a half hours in Virginia, 
It's the largest naval base in the world. And they, and they suit us up. They, they put us with life jackets and with helmets and with goggles. And they get us in the plane with one of those five-point racer-type harnesses, right? And you're facing the back of the airplane. And this is the airplane. This is called a cod. This isn't, this isn't exactly Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick, but this is, that's my version of Tom Cruise in Top Gun. And, and we get in this plane, and we fly 100 miles out over the Atlantic to go to this aircraft carrier, and we were going to land this plane at this airport. That airport is the USS George Washington, 100,000 tons, 5,000 sailors, it's a small city, and the problem with that airport is that it's moving. It's going forward at about 30 miles an hour, it's going up and down, and it's going sideways, depending on the weather. And we are in that other plane, that twin prop cod, and we're going to land on that deck at 180 miles an hour. And I'm in the back of the plane saying, oh Jesus. Help this guy not have a good day. We want the guy to have a good day. When he, and when you touch down, it's got this hook, and it snags that cable, and you stop in two seconds. That's why you have the goggles, catch your eyeballs. And so, they, you know, it just, and, and it just, bam, it just stops. And when you leave, they catapult you off, just like that movie. And you go from zero to 200 in three seconds. It's just like that. Anyway, we land on the plane, and we get out, and uh, walk into what they call the wardroom, and here's the admiral, because they're on maneuvers getting ready for Persian Gulf deployment, and there's a captain, and then other officers, and sometimes you have things in your life that happen that just surprise you, and I get to the end of this line of about eight or nine officers, and this young man steps forward, and he says, hi, President Post, nice to see you again, and when I was president of this small college, Louis Rodriguez was one of the guys, and now he's the lead chaplain on the USS George Washington, <laughs> And later that evening, I didn't tell this in the first two services, so it, you know, this is like free right here. And later that evening, he said, you know, they have a tradition in the Navy that when they turn the smoking lamp down, that's euphemism for we're going to bed, we have a prayer, 90-second prayer from the bridge. He said, would you like to do that? I go up with him to the bridge. He introduces me on the loudspeaker. I'm talking to 5,000 people going 30 knots or 25, whatever, out in the Atlantic, and I get to pray for these. I mean, it was just, you know, my thing is, when you follow Jesus, he, he, he gives you thoughts you never thought you'd have. He takes you places you never could imagine you'd go, and, and he gives your friends that last forever. Well, I mean, what's wrong with that scenario? Like, nothing is wrong with that scenario. But, but the next day, we get to tour the whole ship, and we got to meet the officer who's in charge of the anchor. They got an officer in charge of the anchor on an aircraft carrier. And we, and we met with the admiral, we met the captain, and we met with the guy fixing uh, jet engines on the fan tail of the aircraft carrier, and we met with one of the cooks. And the thing that st struck, struck me most of all is that whether we were talking to the admiral or talking to the cook, everybody we talked to knew the mission. Everybody knew the mission. And Mark is saying, it's all about mission, and the mission is one word, Messiah, the anointed one who's coming to redeem all people 
and fix the world. Later on in his writing, and we'll see this, <clears throat> some of Jesus' followers were squabbling around about who gets to be the lead dog or who gets to be best. And he's saying, you know, really, the, the lead dog, this is false language, of course, the, the lead dog is the guy who, like, washes feet, you know. And, and this is the language Jesus uses in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the last phrase, Son of God. For some people, that's, that's a challenge, and I get that. But when you read Jesus in the Gospels, he's always talking about his dad. He's always, he, he's saying to people, if you, if you knew the Father, you would know me. Anything that I'm telling you, I get from my Father. And, I, you know, this, this came home to me years ago when we were, I was in a fraternity house at the University of Illinois, and we had this fellow on campus who was a Messianic Jewish man. That means he's a Jewish person who followed Jesus, which is, of course, what the whole first century was about, pretty much. A lot of Jewish people doing this. And he was probably the most articulate guy that I had ever met up to that point with the English language. Guy brought up in Brooklyn, name was Art, and his mission was to just tell this good news about Jesus. And so we're in this fraternity house, mostly Jewish guys, and um, he tells about being brought up in Brooklyn. He was a high school history teacher, had a master's in history and philosophy and all this stuff. And at age 34, his life fell apart, and he goes to Western Europe to, quote, find himself, and instead Jesus finds him, tags him, totally revolutionizes his life. So he tells his little testament, not a little testament, he told his testimony, and then somebody called out from the back, said, Art, who sent you here? He said, you know, Moses had that problem. He said, Moses is in front of the burning bush, and God wants him to go to Pharaoh in Egypt, where he's wanted for murder, and he, and he you know, bring those people out, set my people free. And he said, what shall I tell him when I go? Speaking about the Israelites. And he said, what name shall I give him? Because in that time, you know, thousands of gods, all different names. He said, tell him I am that I am. Most secure name in the universe. And he said, but what if they won't believe me? I need a sign. Well, he didn't say that, actually. He stopped there. And the kid in the back said, but didn't they say, didn't Moses say that they wouldn't believe him? He needed a sign. And Art said, yeah. He said, didn't, didn't he say, didn't God say, throw down your staff, your rod? He said, yeah. And it turned into a snake? He said, yeah. And the kid over here said, good luck. And Art took his Bible and he said, this is the only staff I have. This says, fellas, that if you believe Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, tonight, that he will turn your life inside out, make you a new guy. Any takers? You could have heard a pin drop. The hair was standing up on the back of the, my neck. I'm thinking, I don't know if we're getting out of here. That night, five of those young men bent their knee to Jesus. But one guy came up to him, so totally ticked, just upset, got right in his face. Why do I have to come to the Father through Jesus? Why can't I come through Mike? <laughs> and Art said, because Mike's not God. He's not the son of the Father. And that night, that young man bent his knee Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. The beginning of the good news about that. First century full of persecution. Already said that. And back in the day, when you're persecuted, you find other ways to communicate. 
Today we'd call it encryption. Back in their day, they called it art. The cross was not the sign of faith in the early years of Christianity. This was. So I'm standing on a street corner. We're talking together. I don't know where you are in this whole business. Got Roman soldiers over there with swords and whatever. And so I'm just, I just in the dirt, I just take my toe and I, I make the top half of that. And I step back and you step over and just, you do the bottom half of that fish. And, we know, and you say, well, why a fish? The word for fish in the Greek language is ichthus. If you're a scientist that studies fish, you're called an ichthyologist. Some of you remember that film, Jaws, that scared the bejeebers out of you back however many years ago. And there was that little academic guy. He was an ichthyologist. And what the early believers did was to take that word, ichthus, and make an acronym out of it. That means that, that the first letter, or each of the letters, becomes the first letter of a word. And this is what it meant back in the day. Ichthus meant Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. So every, all the words that Mark is using in the first verse are captured in the word fish back in the day. And when you think about that, when you think about the direction of that, here is Jesus, his mission is to redeem humanity. And let me, let me now just bring this in for a landing. I'm not going to come in at 180 miles an hour on the deck of an aircraft. I'm just going to start easing into the landing. And I just want you to hear Jesus' words from Luke when he describes his mission as Messiah. This is Isaiah he's quoting in Luke. It's Isaiah 61. He's in a synagogue talking to the people. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. There's that word, Messiah anointed one. To proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me just say those things again real quick. Proclaim good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. And I say, wow. Wow, I'd like to be on the receiving end of that. <laughs> if I'm brokenhearted, I, I need my wounds bound up. If I'm, if I'm in prison, I need to be unlocked and let out. What, I mean, what, how could I capture that, that idea in a word? I have a word. It might not be the word you would choose, but I, I think so. And the word to me is kind. Many of you know that I love telling stories, and I love this story is one of my favorite because it's true and because it's not far away. There was an extraordinary and unique moment in my lifetime, my lifetime, that I see as a metaphor for the kingdom of God. If you walked out of here today and got in your car and started driving northwest, and you drove two hours or three hours and 30 minutes, 240 miles about, you'd, you'd come to a town just off I-80 called North Platte, Nebraska. 81 years ago this month, and by the way, that town has 23,000 people in it today. 81 years ago this week, that town had 12,000 people in it. And... Um, it was the hub for the Union Pacific Railway. All kinds of passenger trains coming through. Today, no passenger train goes through North Platte, Nebraska. 
but they have the largest railroad yards in the world, I understand, just outside North Platte called Bailey Yards, where they do a variety of things. After Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 41, 81 years ago, they started tr moving troops within two weeks across the country, and a phenomenal thing happened. One young woman, a 26-year-old drugstore clerk by the name of Ray Wilson, R-A-E, Wilson, had a brother in the Nebraska National Guard, a captain. She heard, they didn't have cell phones, she heard some way that a trainload of guardsmen were coming through, and she got some of her girlfriends, and they baked cookies and got apples and went down and met this train. Turned out not to be Nebraska National Guardsmen, it was Kansas National Guardsmen, but they had all these cookies, and, and so they just gave them to the guys. And she had an idea. And she wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper in North Platte and said, we did this thing today, and the 300 young men on the train liked that idea. They responded so favorably. It reminded me that in World War I, here, when the troops were moved across the country, we had a thing called the canteen where they could get some food. And I'd like to suggest that we do that again. And she started doing it. She didn't ask for permission. She just started doing it. And she started organizing mostly women. They went to the guy who owned a defunct restaurant there and asked if, he, if he'd give it for the purpose of this North Platte Canteen, as they called it. And they, they got a hold of the U.S. Army and said, could, could trains stop here just for a few minutes? And the U.S. Army agreed that every train had troops on it, which was like every train could stop for 10 minutes in North Platte, Nebraska. If you were on that train sometime between December or Christmas day of 41 through April of 1946, if you were on that train and you pulled into North Platte, this is what you'd see. You'd see young women with baskets of goodies there. And then once you grab something there, you'd run into the train station and you'd see all this food with all of these other women. And it would just be all kinds of stuff. And you had 10 minutes. And maybe you'd have a conversation with some folks like that, right? And then you'd hear the train whistle blow and somebody say, all aboard! And you'd run out of the, out of the canteen, jump back on the, on the train, and off you'd go. The crazy thing about this for me is that it's a town of 12,000. And over that time period, 54 months, from 125 communities within 100 miles of North Platte, women mostly organized themselves, 12,000 women organized themselves to take turns and they brought their own food, they cooked their potato salad or however you did that, they had chickens and turkeys and pies and pumpkin pies and apple pies and donuts and, and they'd get fresh milk off the farm and they'd come in And they met every train for 54 months every day, sometimes up to 32 trains a day, a town of 12,000, and every day for all of those years, somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000 military personnel would get, a, would get off the train for 10 minutes in North Platte, Nebraska. A fellow named Bob Green, sports writer from Chicago, wrote a book about this 20 years ago. I commend it to you. It's a wonderful book. It's called Once Upon a Town, The Miracle of North Platte, Nebraska. 
And he interviewed some of the guys who had been on the train now, and then they were in their 70s, maybe 80s. And he said, when I would say North Platte, Nebraska, many of them would start to weep. And I'd say, what are you, what are you crying for? This is a typical story. And I was a kid from Brooklyn. Grew up in New York my whole life. Never, never been out of New York City. I graduated high school on a Friday, enlisted on a Monday, and within days I was on a train heading west. He said, in the middle of the night, somebody said 10 minutes to North Platte. Had no idea what a North Platte was. Jumped off the train, ran into this place, and here were women that looked like our mothers and our aunts and girls who were like our sisters and our cousins. And there was all this food, fresh apple pie and fresh donuts and hot chocolate and coffee and, and milk fresh off the farm. And there were ham sandwiches and there were pheasant sandwiches in season. I told this story at the Nebraska Governor's Prayer Breakfast some years ago. They knew the story, but I told it anyway. And afterwards, a state senator came up and said, Dick, sometimes my mom worked there as a young woman, sometimes it was pheasant sandwiches out of season. Just wanted to tell you that. And he said, we would eat as fast as we could. There was a piano in there. Somebody might play a tune. Somebody grab a girl and dance across the floor. And then the whistle would blow and we'd run back out. And as we ran out, somebody would hug us as we went out the door and whisper in our ear, God bless you, sailor. Praying for you, soldier. We're 18 years old. We're 19. We jump on this train going to God knows where, not knowing if we would ever come back alive. But for 10 minutes in the middle of the night, in a place we had never been with people we had never met, somebody was kind to us. I told the story a few years back at the 60th anniversary of a group called Campus Life Youth for Christ. They work with high schoolers down here in Denver. And the next morning, a young woman came up and said, I'm a YFC staff member in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania. Said, um, or Lehigh, Pennsylvania. She said, as you were talking, I was thinking of my grandpa who served in the Navy in South Pacific in World War II. And I called my mom last night and said, do you think grandpa went through North Platte, Nebraska? She said, I don't know, honey. Why don't you call and ask? But you know how grandpa is. He's, she said, my grandpa's 93 and is in a nursing facility. Most of the time doesn't know who he is, let alone where he is. And I called him last night and said, Grandpa, this is Jennifer. And he recognized me. I said, Grandpa, does the name North Platte, Nebraska mean anything to you? And she said, instantly, he was lucid. He said, North Platte, Nebraska. You bet it does. That's the place where I ran in there and they had fresh donuts and they shined my shoes. What is it? that makes a man with dementia or old age or whatever become lucid like that. I would submit that it's an act of kindness that is an expression, I think, of the heart of God. Ray Wilson, with that dream, with her sense of mission, triggered this whole other thing. Say, well, you know, kindness, that's good. You know, it's kind of like love. It's an, like an amorphous word. No, 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 no. Kindness is not a soft, squishy thing. Kindness is solid. Kindness is a rock upon which eternal life can be built. Kindness isn't vague. It is a specific act. I hear the Apostle Paul's words ring in my ears, writing also to the Romans like Mark was. 
In Romans 2, 4, where he says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? The kindness of God, the old King James says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance, leads us to turn around. Here it is one more time. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Bottom line up front, the person is the mission. We sang it earlier, the blessing. He is for you and for your children and your children's children to a thousand generations. He goes before you, he's behind you, he's around you, he's within you. So here's my question, what might your mission be in mine in 2023? I just had this thought. When we get Jesus, we get good news. When we get Jesus, we get the deepest act of kindness we will ever know. When we get Jesus, we also get his mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for giving us moments in time from wherever they come and people that remind us of you and your mission. And we will give you praise for that this day, the very first day of 2023. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand and sing along with Cameron. Let's worship the Lord.
children, their children in His presence go before you, behind you, beside you, all around you, within you. team is going to be here at the front and I would submit to you that 10 minutes in North Platte, Nebraska was incredible but one minute when somebody says can I pray for you that's called an act of kindness oftentimes can do more than one can imagine so as the prayer team comes many of us will be leaving but some might want to just come and just be just for a moment with some friends who would pray with you. I, uh, I feel, you know, this is where I want to do a benediction, sort of a blessing, I, but I, when you sing a song like that, it's like you're already blessed, you know, what's that about? By the way, Cameron was kind enough to say to the worship team, why don't you uh, take a little break here. I'd like to thank Cameron for just leading us in worship. you just thank Cameron for leading us in worship today? So in 2023, as we go, may his blessing be upon you. We're blessed by having you here. If you're a guest, I'm, I'll be back there in the lobby area with some other friends. I'd love to have you stop. If you've been here a hundred years and just want to stop by, let's do that too. But may his blessing be upon you. May his kindness be in you so that wherever you are in the weeks to come, people will sense that in you, through you, because his mission is our mission. Go in his grace. God bless. <laughs>